of, no, not 2012, 2012. Um, the author and pastor, Kevin DeYoung, wrote a book with a clever title called The Whole in Our Holiness. And the premise of this book was very, very simple. The whole in the holiness of the church in the West was that essentially we are not very good at holiness, or we don't even really care that much or prioritize holiness, of living a whole life for God and choosing to live lives that reflect and look something like Jesus. And I would argue that in the 10 years that have followed since 2012, the hole in the church is still very much a gaping hole. And of course, we are talking very generalized, broad brushstroke statements. But I think as a church in the UK, we are good at putting on great meetings. We can run courses. We can do good ministry. But I do think that this remains an area of weakness, of what it looks like to be a holy people together. But I think also this does represent a wonderful opportunity, a real opportunity. And not just because, you know, it's something we're not so good at, so there's always an opportunity to improve. Not just because a church should always care about holiness, although, of course, those things are true, but because of the unique moment that we find ourselves in at the moment, that at this time, where we are at, a call back to holiness could be exactly what it is that God is speaking over his church. We are in um, part four of our Haggai series, and we've got one more part next week. And so far, what we have seen is that 20 years after the people have returned from exile in Babylon, they've come back to their land, and we have seen 20 years after God initially asked them to build the temple. The rebuilding of the temple is kind of the central narrative and event that is happening within this book. 20 years after, the people have finally started to make significant progress in rebuilding this temple. They have heard the, the voice of God. They've heard the wake-up call that he's giving them. They've responded in obedience. They're faithfully getting on with it. They're going for it. And we look at it and we think, now they are actually doing it. Job is done. God has asked them to do it. They are doing it. Surely that's, that's the end of the narrative. That's the end of the, the drama, if you like. But today, what we're going to see is that in these days of Haggai, these days that, as we have seen, the people are a fraction of what they once were, this day of small things, that God wants to do something far deeper in this group of people than just move them to doing obedient behavior, than just getting on with his work, doing the right thing. He wants to form this people into a holy remnant. He wants them to be a people set apart for him, living for his glory and his glory alone, devoted to him. And in our day today, that as we have seen, are so similar to these days of Haggai. Small things, a day of rebuilding. He wants the same for us. I think he wants his church to, if you like, close that hole in our holiness, to make us into a holy people. Because as we'll see today, with just a remnant, just a small but radically devoted people going after him. He is able to do extraordinary things. So today's message, if you like titles, is, uh, is called The Holy Remnant. And we're going to read from verse uh, 10 in chapter 2 of Haggai. So ha Haggai is right near the end of the, the Old Testament, really close to the beginning of the New, um, sandwiched in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. But the words that appear just there, so you can follow along. Verse 10, chapter 2. 
on the 24th day of the ninth month. By the way, there's going to be some pretty obscure references in here, but I hope that as we go through, you'll be like, oh, this actually does make a bit more sense. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, told you it would be obscure, and touched, touches with his fold, fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is two months after he has last spoken to his people. The book of Haggai kind of moves along at quite a clip. God's speaking very, very close to one another. He's urgent. He wants to speak to his people. And he speaks through these two questions. Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Now, this is the question you came to church wanting to know the answer to, right? What he's saying here is there's holy meat that was purified for the sake of sacrifices to God. And the question that is being asked is, this would then be carried in sort of the fold of a robe. They didn't have pockets in those days. So they carry it in their robe. And the question is, when the holy meat then touches the robe, does the robe then become holy because it's touched the meat? And then if there was something else then carried in that same robe, bread or... <laughs> or stew, which I don't quite know how that would work. Give me some stew, please. Does then that bread or that stew then become holy? Essentially, the question is, is holiness contagious? End of verse 12, Haggai answered and said, the priest answered, sorry, and said, no. So then the next question is, well, is the opposite true? Verse 13, then Haggai said, if anyone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? So if something that is unclean, a dead body in this case, that is ceremonially unclean, touches, is touched by a person or touches a person, that contact makes the person unholy. And then if that unclean person touches one of the aforementioned items, bread, wine, etc., does that become unclean? Verse 13 at the end it does become unclean. And this seems to us incredibly niche. But actually, the point that it's trying to make is quite a general point and actually a fairly straightforward thing that unholiness 
is more contagious than holiness. You put holiness and unholiness together, it's only going one way. I guess an, an, uh, an analogous illustration for us would be if you were to imagine two people in a room, one was the very image of health, absolutely nothing wrong with them, but you put them in a room with someone that has, I don't know, say a virus that is very contagious, if you can possibly imagine one of those, put them in a room together, they have close contact, what's going to happen? As I think we all know by this point, it's not the health that is transferred. Wouldn't have the last two years been so much easier if it was? <laughs> but is of course, the sickness. And what God is trying to communicate with his people is, if you are unclean, simply being in proximity to and having some close contact with something that is holy is not enough to make you clean. And exactly where he's trying to drive at this with, from God's perspective is shown to us in verse 14 where he says, so is it with this people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. He's calling attention to the work that they are doing with their hands. This rebuilding of God's temple that I mentioned before. This is the call that they have had from God. This is their assignment from God. And as assignments that are obviously pure and holy go, this is right up there. They are building the house of God. They are building the place where the Holy One is going to dwell amongst his people. And I imagine as they faithfully get on with it and they build and it all starts to take shape, they are thinking, this is where God is going to live. This is where the action is at. This is the most important thing, the thing that God is doing in the whole of the world. And every day as they come to build, they are coming into contact with the holy. They are involved in God's most precious thing that he is doing. It must have been so easy for them to think, this is what faithfully living for God looks like. We have got this call from God. We've got this mission from God. And he is totally in it. We are right back on track as a people. Look at us go. Look how God's using us. But God's saying to them, simply being involved and associated with and touching the holy in itself is not enough. That as God looks on it, he delights in their obedience and all it is that they are doing. But he's saying there's still something more that I want from you. I don't just want you to be involved in the holy. I want you to be holy. And from the totally obscure of nearly 3,000 years ago, people carrying around meat in their robes, I think this speaks right into our circumstances. I think we too, we love to think that building the temple is what it's all about. That we love being involved in God's work. We love the call of God over our lives. We love to build his thing. And, and it's so easy for us to think that that is really what it's all about. I think it's so easy for us in a young church that has seen some exciting things happen and we've seen God on the move. We've, it's very easy. I certainly feel the pull of it myself to think, oh, this is what really matters. You know, building church is what really matters. As our, our, our attendance goes up and we can celebrate big numbers in the offering that we had, we see people get baptized, we, we see ministry success. 
Which, of course, every one of those things is really good things. But I think it's easy if we're involved in it to think that's what really matters. That's what God's really interested in. And so we can start to think that's what the Christian life is really all about. That so long as we hear some kind of calling from God over our life, and we know where it is that he wants us to go. So long as we then respond in obedience and we give ourselves and, and, and obey him and start doing the work that he's given us to do and we build, that's it. That is the successful life. And of course, again, all of those things are good. But if it's the only measure of success that we use, then this idea of holiness, this inner life of true devotion to God, just isn't given much room to breathe in our imagination. It doesn't really fit into the picture. And you know, in the Western church, we are reaping a harvest of holiness being forgotten. We are seeing the fall of countless leaders of major international ministries and churches and movements around us. We're seeing it happen closer to home as well, where the priority has been the call of God of obediently doing the work of building while inner holiness is just not necessarily given much room to breathe at all. And so we live in this time of marriages ruined and families grieving and churches decimated and people walking away from the faith. This is what happens when the church forgets its call to be holy. And so the prophet Haggai, he comes and he speaks to God's people. These people who, by all appearances, as we look from the outside on, we think they have got a killer calling from God. They are flying. They got this, God has spoken over them. And by every metric we might use as we look at them, think they are being successful. And Haggai speaks and says, it is not okay to be pursuing the call of God and doing the work of God without also pursuing holiness. And Haggai here is doing what prophets in the Bible often do. He's not predicting the future, as we might think prophecy is, but he's more just exposing and revealing that which is already there. It's like he's seen a nice, beautiful rock on the floor. I think that's very nice. But what he does is then he lifts it up and just exposes the creepy crawlies and the insects and the wriggly thingies that are there, hidden in the dark places underneath. And here are a people who, for 20 years, they forgot God. They left him and his temples in ruins. They lived for themselves. And although they have done really well since, they have heard the call of God, they've sprung back into action, they've responded in obedience, they've got to work. What Haggai's saying to them here is, there are still things in your life that do need dealing with. There are things lurking underneath the surface, perhaps. Maybe things that nobody else really knows about, nobody else can see. Outsiders looking in would just think you're flying. There are ways of living that you need to turn from. There are people that you need to separate yourself from. There are habits you need to pick back up. There are virtues that you need to start pursuing again. It's time to live holy, says Haggai. 
And I wonder if this might speak into your circumstances this morning, that maybe post-pandemic you have sprung back into life. You have started coming to church. You are here every Sunday. You joined that kids' team, first invitation that was sent out. God bless you. You're, you're, you're investing in community. You gave generously into the offering. You are building. But you know you haven't quite sprung back in quite the same way, into a life of holiness. That perhaps that internal filter that you have for what is okay to watch on Netflix has just got a little bit looser and looser over time. That perhaps your desire to be accepted by that group of friends has just become so important and so, 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 so the thing that you have just, when you look at your own behavior and the way you speak around them, you just think, that is, that's not me. That's not who I want to be. There may be that relationship you're in, it's fun and it's exciting, but you just know, actually, I don't think this is honoring God. Or perhaps it's just quite as subtle as faith has really become the thing you do on Sunday, but the rest of the week, not so much. And as much as God would absolutely delight in all that you are doing to build his kingdom and respond to the call, you just know God is drawing you into more. He is drawing you into a life of increased holiness. This is what he's stirring in his people in the days of Haggai. And I think this is something of what he's doing amongst us in our day as well. We have spoken before of some of the parallels of this situation in these days and ours. How they were living a life that was fairly normal and fairly routine and predictable. And then massive disruption comes as they get taken off into exile or if you like isolation for a time. And now they have just returned after a bruising time of tragedy and loss. And they're returning to something that in many ways is completely normal and in many other ways is totally different and completely uncertain. And they are looking to rebuild. I think we can relate to all of those things from the last two years. And as we said, they are also returning to days of small things. Again, we can relate. In Great Britain, we have seen years gone by where we have seen God move in big ways, big numbers, big ministries. But now these are days of much smaller things. And what does God do in days of smaller things? In days that are so like today, when we look at this. What is God seeking as he looks to rebuild his people after a time of crisis? As he looks to lead his people towards days of greater glory that we looked at last week that you can see earlier in the chapter. What we don't see God doing is just being like, well, let's try and do anything we can to add to their numbers. Let's just make this thing bigger. And then if we've got strength in numbers, maybe we can just barrel our way through. He doesn't look at his people and think, okay, where's the gifting? Who are the people that are really going to take us on? He totally devotes himself to just this small remnant of people and he just gives himself to them. He pours into them. And says, I'm going to make you not just an obedient people, not just a people that can do the right things, but I want to see you completely transformed. I want to see you refined. I want to make you holy, a people completely and totally devoted to me, serving me with all of your life, committed to me and my glory. God loves to take small things and refine them and use that to lead his people into great things. 
When we see Jesus coming to earth to begin to establish his kingdom and build it from the ground up, what's his approach? He doesn't look for the crowds. The crowds often turned up, but Jesus is often found running away from them and escaping them. Who does he devote his time to? Just 12 men. Just pours the whole of his life into these 12 shaping them, teaching them, refining them, leading them in holiness. Twelve men that we know are not very impressive, completely broken, flawed individuals. But when it really mattered, when Jesus was done with them, they were fiercely committed to Jesus. They would give everything for him. And from these twelve, the kingdom of God explodes. And he uses the small and the refined to break out even today. In November 1949, two sisters in their 80s, Peggy and Christine Smith, in the Scottish Hebridean island of Lewis, cried out for revival in their church when they realized not one young person from the whole island was coming to church. And so they started praying nightly, often going to 3 a.m. with their prayers. Would you save the young in our city, on our island, God? And as a group of them gathered to pray, a turning point in their prayers was when they felt God lead them to Psalm 24. That just the few of them that were praying, they felt God was saying from Psalm 24, you need to be of people who have clean, clean hands and pure hearts. A remnant of people devoted to holiness. And as they did, this 82-year-old woman, this 84-year-old woman and these others, as they devoted their lives to just not just doing the right thing and praying, but living holy lives for him. Almost immediately, God moved. The Holy Spirit just descended upon them. Hundreds, hundreds of young people without any invitation, without any social media marketing campaign, just started flooding into the churches. People were woken up in their sleep and just gave their life to Jesus without knowing anything. They're just like, I need to respond. Revival broke out. If we want God to move in our day, if we want to see him move in Manchester, if we want to see the city changed, if we want to see the homeless housed, if we want to see the power of the kingdom of God breaking out in a broken city, this is where we have to start. There is no formulas. There's no ways that we can make any guarantees about what would happen. But I do think this is what God would be leading us into if we really want to see this happen. And we should be very encouraged. It does not take a big group of people There's more than two of us here, and we're younger than 82 and 84. But it does take a group of people who choose to live holy. People ruthless in rooting out sin from their life. People who are fearless in saying, yes, I'll go wherever you want me to go, God. Sacrificial in giving up their time to pursue him and his presence. Willing to make life decisions and choices and financial decisions that are sacrificial and put him first. Just saying, I will live all of my life for you, God. And if you are feeling some sense of just God's conviction in your heart at the moment, and just that little pull that he sometimes gives to us, might be over a certain thing or just more a general sense of, I want this. And it might even be that over for you the last few weeks, few months, you've just been feeling this sense of, I'm seeing things in my life as sin, that, to be honest, never really bothered me before. Or you've just got that feeling of, God, I have to change. I have to live different. I have to be different. You might even have a sense of unease over 
who you are and how you've lived, which is, can be very uncomfortable. And you're just wondering, God, why is this going on? Why am I feeling like this? I felt normal just a few weeks ago, and now I just can't shake it. I think this might be a time for us where God is stirring up and shaking us up, calling us to be this holy remnant, to take us deeper into him for our sake, of course, and maybe even for the sake of our city. And as God shows us our own hearts, lifts up that rock, it can be very uncomfortable. It can be quite vulnerable. We can feel quite exposed in it. But as we see ourselves in a new way and think, I should not have been living like this. As God speaks to us, he also speaks to draw near. Verse 15, now then, consider from this day onward. As his people stand before him, knowing they are unclean, exposed, vulnerable before him. They know just how far of his, short of his glory they have fallen as they come before this holy God, what does the holy God do? He moves towards his people. He says, come, let us find a way onwards. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it again in verse 18, consider from this day onwards. He's saying to his people, there is an onwards. There is a way forwards. This word onward is the same kind of word that we would use of onwards and upwards. It is a very positive word. It is a future-oriented word. It is a hopeful word. He's saying together, let us find a way forward. Let me come to you. Let's partner together and let's go forward so that you may be all that you could be, all that you should be. It reminds me of a beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 1 where God again, he draws near to a sinful people and he says to them, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. If there is one thing that the book of Haggai is all about, it is about this, the movement of God towards his people. He comes to them and says, build me a house. Why? So that my house will be around among your houses, that I can dwell in your midst and live amongst you. When he wants obedience from them, he comes to them and he stirs up their hearts and moves them. And we hear him saying repeatedly, I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. To a people who have rejected God, they have a track record of disobedience. We see even as they hear God and they start responding, they then easily get distracted, easily get discouraged. And now we see these people before God, unholy, unclean to these people, people in sin. He keeps drawing near. He is not put off by our disobedience. He's not put off by our shortcomings and our patchy track record. He is not put off by our sin. He doesn't see our failures and run a mile. But like the father in the story of the prodigal son, when he sees the younger son, when he sees the one who has rejected him, who has run away, who has squandered everything, who deserves nothing, when the father sees that son, he runs towards him. When God sees us in our sin, when he exposes some of our sin to us, he runs towards us. 
he runs, and in verse 15, he says, consider. We saw this word in chapter 1 a couple of times, consider your ways. And again, we see it here in verse 15. We see it twice, actually, in verse 18. Consider. A word of such patient tenderness from their God. As we saw in the first week, this is a word of urgency. It is a word of wake up and see yourself and understand that there is something that needs to change, but expressed with such compassionate appeal to their hearts. He's asking them to consider the life that they've been living before. Now then, consider from this day onwards, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. And then I love this. He just says, how did you fare? How did you get on? How did that life living in that way pan out for you? Did you get the results that you were hoping for? He goes on in verse 16, and he said, look, you went to the something. It doesn't really specify what, but you're expecting 20 measures, and you only got 10. You got a 50% return on what you thought you were going to get. And then he says, you went to the wine vats, and you were expecting 50, and you only got 20. 50% return, now a 40% return. He's wanting them to see this is the path that you are on. This is the worrying trend line. This is the diminishing returns of sin. That It always promises so much. It says that it's going to fill your storehouses, but then as you go on, you realize it is delivering less and less and less, and then it's too late and you've got nothing. This is the curse of sin. It will rob us, it will rob us, it will rob us until we are bankrupt. And we get this really sobering picture of these people at the end here. Outwardly flourishing, running after the call of God, building the house of God, doing the most exciting thing for God. But then when you see inside, much more hidden is that behind closed doors, they are withering. They are on the pathway to nothing, less and less and less, and soon they will be completely empty. And you hear almost the desperation in God's voice in verse 17, trying to get their attention. It doesn't have to be this way. I want you to turn to me because if you do, there is a a fullness and there is an abundance that you can have if only you will turn to me. Turn to me, he says, and then at the end of verse 19, Because from this day on, I will bless you. Turn away from that life of diminishing returns and devote your life to me and you can experience my abundance. I love how last week Jem referred to the words that God speaks in earlier on in the chapter of be strong as old words for these people. Words that echo throughout their history and resonate with moments that they had been through in their past of particular moments of God's faithfulness and his provision in order to build faith in them again. This is the same God. He can act again. Well, these words here, I will bless you, these are the oldest of old words. These are the very first words that God spoke to Abraham when he called him out, the founder 
and the father of their faith. He said, I will bless you. He repeats exactly the same words then again to Abraham's son, Isaac. I will bless you. And to Isaac's son, Jacob. I will bless you. And he keeps repeating the same words throughout the generations of God's people. He's kept repeating the same words throughout all history since. And he speaks those words to us today. I will bless you. It is the greatest story that has ever been told. That our holy God draws near to an unholy people and says, I will bless you. That as I come to you, you can experience all of the goodness and the abundance and the bounty of my house. For these people, that was their barns filled with figs and olives and pomegranates. For us, it all comes true in Christ. He has come to us, taken us by the hand to lead us out of the land of cursed sin, the land of diminishing return to show us the way to the blessing of the kingdom. Through the cross, he broke the curse of sin that was hanging over us, taking us away from the old way, the old life, so that we can know everything good forevermore as we find ourselves in him. He is our blessing. And God speaks these old words to build faith. That as these people were standing at this point of decision, they were wondering, should I pursue this life of holiness that God is calling me into? Should I entrust everything to my God? And it can feel so costly. We stand at the same point of decision. Such a big decision. Can I do it? And he draws near to us and says, from this day on, come and find your way back into holiness. Step away from the curse of sin. Come near to me. Come to Christ. Not just because it's the right thing, not because it's the good thing to do, but come so you can experience for yourself all of the the blessings of an abundant life in Christ. I want to pray for us to finish. Um, Can I just invite you to stand? To just have a moment before God. We'll close in just a moment. But I want us to recognize...